Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. In the journalism world, there's a saying for people who have been in the industry for a long, long time. They call them media veterans. My guest today, Cal Pope, is one of those. He's been a reporter, foreign correspondent, and editor at the Wall Street Journal. He was deputy editor of Portfolio Magazine, and he was the editor on Michael Lewis' cover story that would later go on to become the best-selling book and movie, The Big Short. Today, Kyle is the editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. But Kyle isn't joining me today because of those amazing accomplishments. Rather, he's here for an entirely different reason. Along his travels through the Manhattan media world, Kyle was one of the editors of the New York Observer. Yes, that's the same newspaper that Jared Kushner owned before he went off to the White House. Kyle is going to come on the show today to tell us some stories about his interactions with Jared Kushner, Jared's mother, Ivanka, and even the Donald himself. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having so, me. Uh, so I figured let's just jump right in. Uh, you just wrote this amazing story um, on the Columbia Journalism Review site um, about your time with a certain Jared Kushner. Um, is writing about this, is it, is it kind of like um, a little PTSD or is it more cathartic? Well, I've been sort of sitting with this for, well, for like seven years. <laughs> but but <laughs> ever since the election, you know, frankly, um, I would get calls every once in a while by other reporters doing stories about Kushner or about Trump, and they would want my insights, and and I was I was sort of resisted all of that because I just thought, one, I'm not sure I wanted to get involved in this whole thing, and also I didn't want I I felt like I had a whole thought process around it, and I didn't want to just sort of give out a couple of quotes, so I'd been just sort of sitting wondering whether I should do this or could do this, and then we actually had a CJR produced a we we have a quarterly magazine, a print magazine, and the last one we did was all about Trump. And it sort of gave me a good, it was a good venue and a good forum to do this, so I just decided to go for it. So do you remember the first time you met Jared Kushner, and, and what was your feeling? Were you like, oh, he's a smart guy, or eh, I'm not so sure about this one? What was the, the thing yeah, that went through your head? I, I mean, I, I think I remember the first time. I mean, I, I didn't know him um, before he started, before we started talking about me taking over the Observer editorship. Um, if you remember, the timeline was the Observer had been edited by a kind of storied editor, Peter Kaplan, for a long time. Um, Jared bought the Observer from the, the previous owner, and Peter very quickly sort of said, "I'm out." Um, what did What did Jared pay think, for it again? 
I don't actually even remember, or I'm not even sure I know. Um, Got it. I don't, I'm not sure that was public. Uh, I don't Got remember. It. I mean, it could have been. Okay. I just don't remember. Um, so Arthur Carter was the previous owner who seemed, you know, he had a great reputation as being sort of uh, willing to sort of roll with the absurdity of having a weekly print newspaper in New York City that, you know, largely lost money. Um, yeah. And anyway, so he sold it. Jared bought it. Kaplan said, I'm out. Um, and then Jared sort of behind the scenes started looking for a new editor, even though he had told Kaplan's deputy, Tom McGevern, that he was going to be the editor. Um, and that was that should have been a red flag for me, that, that he was saying one thing and was talking to me about replacing Tom at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I didn't quite know what all the dynamics were. And, and you know, you got to remember that this, at the time, the, the Observer was really a fantastic um, it was a fantastic piece of journalism in New York. Um, and it really, I, I didn't grow up in New York, I, it, but, you know, but as soon as I came to the city, I started reading it and it really sort of immersed you in this world that I wanted to be part of. I didn't live in it, but I wanted to be part of it. Um, and it, it had just a great tone and had a great worldview and that some amazing people worked for it. Um, so when, when, when Jared reached out, about editing it, I thought, you know, this is, this is amazing. So I, I met him. Um, again, I didn't know him. Um, I think we met, if I'm, if my memory is right, we met at his office on Fifth Avenue, which is now this notorious office building that he vastly overpaid for. Yeah, the, the famous uh, 666, who would even? I wouldn't. I don't even know why anyone would buy a building number with the six. It just seems like it's like you're just asking for trouble. You're yeah. You're in trouble. You're in trouble from the Did, start. So, so what? So what is what is he like when you first meet him? Is he um, or second meet him or whatever? Is he? Does he have an air of confidence to him, or is it kind of more of a uh, like a trust fund kid who uh, fakes having an air of confidence to him, or what's the? What's the thing you get? Well, when you I mean, first see him? it's it's sort of hard to differentiate the first meeting from what you later learn about him. But I mean, I definitely think in general he comes across. For, for one thing, he comes across as incredibly polished, um, and and he does have a sort of um, he, there is something appealing about him in his sort of aura. I mean, he 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 does have a kind of um, he doesn't come across as. I mean, I've met a lot of. Uh, people with inherited wealth and a lot of just rich people who can be sort of arrogant and obnoxious. He doesn't come across that way. He comes across with some, at least initially, uh, he came across with sort of an, there was an era, uh, an aura of kind of approachability to him. Um, He's got a good rapport, personal rapport with people. Um, At least he did for a while when I was dealing with him. And he just, you know, you know, you would when he would meet people he didn't know before. He would he would engage and he was friendly and there was something winning about him. Um, and you know, you saw you start when I when I came in, he and Ivanka, who had just married, um, were really on the ascendancy in Manhattan. Um, they were going to a lot of you know they were going to the the uh, museum of art, you know, the Met Costume Gala. They were going to film red carpet openings, they were going to parties, and they were sort of on the make. Um, and um, there was no, I mean, you know, they were sort of palling around with celebrities, um, 
and with you know a lot of like moneyed Manhattan people, and they were sort of on the rise. Um, hmm. And I remember when I first started talking to him at the Observer, um, he he did have sort of a vision for the publication, and he did talk, um, you know, with some amount of respect for Kaplan and for the place. He wanted to he wanted to be a lot more businessy. Um, than it was. I mean, it was a kind of arts and culture newspaper, but and he wanted it to be more covering money, which actually was in my wheelhouse because I spent a decade at the Wall Street Journal, and then I'd also worked as a editor at Condé Nast Portfolio, which was a sort of um, famously o- overspent um, business yes. magazine at Condé Nast that folded after the uh, recession hit. So anyway, my my skills sort of matched what he was looking for. So so in your um, uh, um, as you're you're talking to him uh, uh, in your piece, the thing that I found so fascinating was that it quickly became apparent that he wanted you to to kind of he wanted to use the the magazine, sorry, the magazine, the newspaper as kind of a thing to do um, uh, takedowns, if you will, of. Um, uh, of the uh, people that he felt had wronged him or his dad, as a as a journalist, how did you kind of what did you do? Were you just like uh, I'm not really sure how to respond to this, or what was? Uh... Well, there was there was a bit of a context that actually preceded that, which is it also became apparent to me very quickly that he didn't really care very much about what the about the content of of the Observer. Um, he didn't read it. He didn't read it much of anything. He didn't else. read the newspaper he, he owned. He didn't, because um, I would, you know, he would he would actually talk about stories, and I would say, well, that was in that was in last week's paper, or um, <laughs> he just he just didn't. I mean, once in a while, he would he would something would sort of bubble up to his attention, and he would focus on it. But uh, often he, sorry about that, that's my phone. Um, no, don't worry. He about didn't. It. Um, and then and then the other thing, so that that was like red flag, big red flag. <laughs> Um, yeah. The other thing one. was he, he he it was very apparent that he was really caught up in uh, while he didn't really care about the observer editorially he cared a lot to be seen as the guy who turned the thing around. Um, he was really invested in being seen as somebody who could sort of rescue the economics of this newspaper and even of the newspaper business in general. And and there was a certain degree of like condescension that he had, like, surely this can't be that hard, right? I mean, you have a paper, you've got advertisers, you've got a staff, this isn't, doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out how to make this work. Um, so he spent some amount of time like talking to other people in the media business about how they function and how they set up their operations and um, you know, he got really, he started to focus on like how many posts were people, people were filing a day and did we need to have that many people or could we do it with less people? And, um, but it, it was clear that, you know, he, he cared, he, he didn't care about the words, but he cared about being seen as the guy who could make the business work. Um, which mm-hmm. again, as the editor was worrisome to me because, the two things need to sort of go hand in hand, and that clearly was the case with him. So anyway, so that's the sort of like background to the other stuff that started happening, which was him um, starting to use the paper to either um, reward friends of him and his family or to punish them. I mean, in rewarding them, they had this they had a separate publication called the Commercial Observer, which covered mm-hmm. commercial real estate. Um, 
which, you know, clearly if you're him is, is an inherent conflict. It just the existence of it is an inherent conflict. Six, but yeah. then they would give out these, these awards every year where we're like the, I forgot what they call it, the commercial observer 100 or something, the hundred top people in real estate. And it was like all the people, anybody that he was sort of in business with made the top of the list. Um, and I think Trump was even on it. And, um, um, and you know, I would sort of like, yeah, it was sort of like, um, uh, it was, it was, it was run as a somewhat separate operation, but it was still sort of not a cool thing. Um, but I sort of lived with it with the view that, you know, he can have that if we can do real journalism on the other side. But then he started to, like, he would get pissed off at people and he would come in and say, we need to take a look at them or, you, you know, these, you really ought to look at this because this guy, everybody knows he's a bad guy. And then it would sort of like, it, and there was one case I wrote about in a piece where he sort of ratcheted up to where he called me and said, we can have to do a hit job on this guy. Um, and I was like, who is it? And he told me, and it was like some random, uh, uh, commercial banker at, at Bank of America that nobody in their right mind had ever heard of. And, and I was like really dubious about it, but I sort of tried to yes him away and say, well, well, we'll see, we'll see. And he kept pushing it. I remember at some point I just said, you know, we, we can't use this word hit job. Um, it, it's not appropriate. You can't say it. It's like a prelude to a libel case. Um, and anyway, we're not going to do this story because nobody cares about this guy. And and um, and I think that that was the sort of like beginning of the end of my time with him because he sort mm -hmm. of he he's not he's not he's not the type of personality that sort of explodes. Um, he just sort of sits and sort of purses his lips and then says something some kind of something you know benign and then moves on but i could sort of tell from his body language that that was it i later learned that um later because i had these regular meetings with him at, at the fifth avenue office and um one time his dad came in who was sort of who was around his a dad lot. did you say um, his dad yeah his dad the guy came who in had gone to jail him. right the, the, the guy who had gone to jail for a blackmailing his brother-in-law by sending uh by setting him up with a prostitute and then sending the tapes to his sister. So, um, yeah, nice guy. sort of a nice guy. Um, anyway, the dad came in and said, Hey, wait, and, and I was talking to Jared and the dad was like, whatever happened to that bank of America thing? And then it clicked in me. It was like, Oh wow, this isn't about Jared. This was all, he was just doing this for his dad. This is all his dad's thing. Um, it's, it's so fascinating because um, uh, we had Emily Jane Clark on here, uh, sorry, Emily Jane Fox on here um, uh, uh, a couple of episodes back who's, you know, covered covered Jared and Ivanka and so on and so forth. And and her her feeling was that so much of what he does is, is to try to impress his dad. Um, and, yeah, no, there's, uh, the, 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 the psychology of this is just Shakespearean because um, the dad who, you know, the dad went to prison, so this is not like some, these are some baseless allegations. Um, um, but the, but the, the Jared and his dad were, were, the whole time I knew him, were incredibly close. And he, the dad sort of, it became clear over time that the dad sort of blamed, especially the New Jersey press, for his downfall in part. Um, yeah. And here you have, so the dad thinks that. The son, Jared, who's incredibly close to the dad, um, why he would then respond to that by buying a newspaper was sort of made no sense to me. If, if the dad thinks that that journalist brought him down, um, 
and then you know and then and then what it became clear as this as him as the relationship between the two of us just continued this hour was that he you know he actually was held journalist there was a lot of disdain and like sort of like he just really looked down on on the i mean it was so almost what? like you know if if you if you're in a business where you earn if you earn thirty, forty thousand bucks a year, which which I think was probably at the high end for what what was being paid to people, it's like you must be a total loser, right? Um, and um, that's that was Jared's no, thinking. Yeah, totally. And and I think so, you know, there was just no respect for what people did, or and it was always like I would go to him and you know would say this person's going to leave me, so who cares? You know, there's a line of people lining up who can take the job after him. So who I, I, it's so mind-boggling to me that these guys, um, I mean Jared and Trump, um, are they are so disdainful of the media, and yet they are so in need of the attention that it gives them. And it's it's like it just boggles my mind that someone like him would, who clearly hates the media, and I've you know heard this before, would buy a newspaper. Well, I think you have to differentiate the two of them in terms of their attitude to the press. I think, I think Trump like viscerally needs the attention, and it's his oxygen, and and it's he couldn't survive without it. I don't think that's the case with Jared. I think Jared. I don't think Jared needs it in that way. I think it's more transactional for him. He sort of calculates, what can this do to me? Do for me? Can it help me? Can it hurt me? If it can help me, I'll use it. If not, who cares? I think I think they're in a, it's a different it's a different approach. I mean, in a way, Jared is much, is much more calculating about it, and I think Trump is just like uh, I mean, you know, Trump has been this way since he was this whole time in New York City politics, where he's just thrived off of the attention, and whenever he hasn't gotten it, you know, he'll pick up the phone and call reporters himself. And you saw it when he was at the tabloids, where he would just make up PR people and call them. And I mean, this yeah. week, he you know, he's calling up the New York Times and basically saying, "Hey, what's yeah. up." <laughs> so that actually brings um, me to my to my next question. So you uh, you actually had a moment where Jared said, "Hey, I want you to meet my father in law, Donald Trump." Uh, can you tell us that story? What ha- what happened? What it was like? Yeah. So I was the sort of um, shiny object um, initially when I came in, and and Jared had me on this tour where I was going to. He he introduced me to a lot of his friends and business partners. Where it would just be like, "Hey, meet the new editor of the Observer," and I would go and I would meet these people. And and in most of the meeting, and most of it was fine. I mean, most of it, the people were interesting. And and but most of it was it was sort of unclear what we were both doing there. But I sort of I, I took I did these meetings. And then and then he said, "You should go meet my father-in-law." So I made the arrangements. I went up to Trump Tower. I he's got these kind of like concentric circles of offices. You start in one and you sit down and wait for somebody to bring you in and they bring you into the next one and you sit and wait and then somebody brings you into the next one and then you're in his office. Um, I mean, other people have probably described this to you because other people have been in there, but it's, you know, it's sort of covered with pictures of himself on magazines. And he had... <laughs> the, the main memory I have of it was him... I definitely walked in there and he's sitting sort of perfectly erect, you know, straight at his desk. His hands are sort of perfectly folded, on, sitting on his desk. There's no papers on the desk. And it was. It definitely had to look as, as if he had, like, spent a good, you know, 20 or 30 seconds sort of positioning and posing himself so he looked just right. <laughs> that was the sort of feel that you got going in. Um, 
And then so I went and sat down, and it was just abundantly clear that neither of us knew what in the world we were doing there. Um, I thought that he actually had something to tell me, and he I don't know what he thought, but it was just like, it was a few minutes of small talk, um, and then we were both... And then we were both sort of trying to figure out how to get out because there's no point to this discussion. Um, anyway, he just, he kept saying, you know, we all love Jared. We, li- we love Jared. Jared's great. We love Jared. Um, but, you know, there was no – that was it. I mean, it, it, it was a sort of non-event, really, because there was there was nothing that happened there. But it was just sort of part of, I think, you know, I think Jared just wanted to show him that – I mean, I and I, you know, I think – I think maybe he thought Trump would think it was cool that I'd been at the journal. I don't know. Um, but nothing really transpired. But it was, it was and, you know, a lot of people bizarre. had interactions with him. Yeah, but it, it, I think it was probably typical. So when you, um, uh, um, when you have, um, uh, you, you, were you fired from the Observer? Yeah. How did it well, all come crashing if you, if you down? Read, if you read the coverage, it, I wasn't fired. I laughed. But. He was basically fired. Um, got it. So, I mean, it got, it was just, it got increasingly tense and ugly between us. Um, and it wasn't just him. He had a business manager who was particularly difficult to deal with. And I remember one time, like, you know, they would, they would tell me I could give somebody a raise and I would go and give these poor writers who were trained to live in New York City on a penance. Um, I'd say, yeah, you've got, what, you've got 3000 bucks a year extra or whatever it is. And, that it wouldn't show up in their paycheck. Uh. And this happened a couple of times, and I would go back, and, and they would say, well, you know, whatever, not a big deal. Um, and, and, and this had happened a couple of times, and I was so furious. I remember like, I had this staff meeting. I was like, this place is a shit show. And, of course, like within <laughs> 48 hours, this is like on blogs everywhere. The, the editor of the Observer is calling the place a shit show. And Got it. so, yes. I mean, so he knew that I was unhappy, and we would have these conversations, and um, – we had a few conversations of like, well, you know, what do you what do you want to do? Do you want to leave or do you want to stay? And I was just sort of biding my time to see. I don't know what I was trying to do. Anyway, yeah, it sort of ended. And then I think um, so. I was so there was he came in. There was Kaplan for just a second. There was McGavin for a second. There was me. Um, and then I think there was there was two more. I think there were five editors under him the whole time. So you um, uh, um, now you are at the Columbia Journalism Review and mainly writing about journalism. And how do you think someone like Jared um, feels as as the guy who kind of ran a newspaper when he hears what Trump, his father-in-law, is doing to try to make the media even more distrusted in America and calling things that are clearly not fake news, fake news and things like that. Do you think that there's a, an ounce of um, concern from Jared for, for when he sees this stuff or is it just par for the course as far as he's I mean, concerned? I, think it, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I wrote this piece because it really sort of forced me to think through, you know, it, were there signs during this tenure that I had with Jared? I mean, did he, were there signs there of, of the sort of anti-Trump I mean, anti-press rhetoric under Trump that would come later. Because you, ha- you have to assume that Jared has certainly can't, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stories about Jared trying to be the moderating force behind the scenes and it not happening. I don't think this is one of them. I mean, um, so, I mean, I actually see a through line here, but, you know, in terms of, like, the complete disdain that Jared had for the press. And, 
and Trump's. Um, I mean, they, they, it, to me, there's 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 a sameness to this sort of like. I mean, I, I think that the that Jared, Jared and he and I obviously haven't discussed this, but I I, I think he he would look at the coverage of Trump. Um, over the last year and say, yeah, this is exactly what I thought it would be. You can't trust these people. They're out to get you. You know, these journalists are just, you know, um, you know, they're just not people you want to sort of associate with. I think it would, I think I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's just fed his preconceptions about what journalists are like. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Earlier this week, I got a knock on my door, and when I opened it, there was a man standing there with a green Pro Flowers box. Inside, there was a beautiful bouquet of fall flowers that looked like the leaves you see in the Northeast just after Halloween. While the flowers smelled amazing and looked beautiful, they're sitting on our mantle right now. The nice part of this moment was that someone sent these flowers to our house just to say they were thinking of us. Now I'm going to do the same thing, sending someone some fall flowers just to say hi. There are so many awesome bouquets to pick from, including the Autumn Harvest Bouquet, Deluxe Thanksgiving Bouquet, and the Candy Apple Blossoms, which I think may taste pretty good too. Pro Flowers is offering an exclusive discount for listeners of Inside the Hive today, which will get you 20% off any Pro Flowers unique bouquet over $29. Pro Flowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or they give you your money back and you get to control the delivery date. The flowers are better than anything you'll buy anywhere else. So go on, surprise someone just to tell them you're thinking of them this fall. Go to proflowers.com and type in Hive, that's H-I-V-E, at checkout. Once again, proflowers.com and type in Hive, H-I-V-E, at checkout to get your 20% off any bouquet over $29. So do you have any uh, any fun anecdotal stories from your time with the, the Trump family and the, the Kushner family? Any Anything that stands out that you didn't put in the piece that comes to mind. Not really. I mean, I was sort of given the once over by, by Ivanka when I when I first well there were two things actually that were funny. You know, one was um I think and I think they actually said something about like um that it used to annoy cuz Peter Kaplan who was again like a much loved uh, journalistic figure in in New York and around the country actually. But I mean, he was I think he wore the same clothes every day. I mean, he had the same outfit. It was like a khaki pants, a blue blazer and a, and um, and and I remember like either either Jared or Monkey made some snarky remark about his sort of dress code. Um, so when near the end of my vetting process, when Jared was thinking about hiring me, near that it was like the last interview that I had with him. I was in his office and. And Ivanka sort of, quote, sort of dropped by, just like she drops by in the Oval Office now, sort of randomly once in a while. <laughs> and I'm convinced it was like she just wanted to check me out and make sure that my, like, my shirt they wasn't frayed and that I, your outfit. Yeah, that, I was sort of, that I was sort of presentable. Um, the other thing was that I... Well, the, sh- um, the, the, sh- the shiny object has to look good when you sh- take the shiny object right, around to your right. friends. Right, you, you know, you, you, uh, thank God this is radio, but like... To call me shiny is is it's a bit much. You know, I mean, I think I must have just barely cleared the bar. <laughs> or too, the bar too pretty for print, as they say. What's that? Um, I've got I a face too for radio, pretty for print. Face for yeah, podcast. face for radio. Yeah. Um, um, and so, what was the other story you were going to say? Sorry. Well, just the other thing was like um, we, we I didn't hear much from his parent. I mean, his dad. I, I told you about. He would be around. His mom was a bit of a non 
I didn't really deal much with her, except during my time, they moved the Observer office from, it was near the Union Square, and then they moved it up to Times Square in a building that Jared owned off of Times Square. And um, his mom was really involved in the kind of like decor and layout and architecture of this new space. Um, and she was really interested in it and like, you know, what, what was it going to look like and what colors it was going to be. And, and um, Kaplan had left me a kind of rug, like a, you know, a throw rug in, in the office in the other building. And I liked it. And so I took it up to um, the new office, and apparently she hated it um, because there was like a business guy who would come over and say, you know, um, Jared's mom really doesn't like this rug here, and she really wants you to take it out. Uh, and I was like, well, I like the rug. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take it out. And part of the problem it was actually there, she was not wrong. There was a logistical problem, like the door wouldn't fully close in my office because this rug was in the way. Um, but this guy, <laughs> this poor guy would get sort of increasingly anxious, like, you know, Mrs. Kushner really does not like, and he must have told me this four or five times, really does not like this rug. And I'm like, I'm keeping the fucking rug. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> that, maybe, you, that, maybe you, actually that's the thing that sealed my fate there. That could have been the thing that sealed my fate. The, the rug, the great rug the rug. that the Kushners hated. Did you, um, that's so bizarre that you're, you know, you're uh, a, a grown man for want of a better description and uh um and you run all these businesses and i'm being told and, i can't have a rug and yeah and you can't have a rug um did you uh um did you spend time with uh, with uh, jared and ivanka socially too or not socially i mean um when i first got hired i was i went over there for dinner and and i went um um there was a few i remember when there was there were there were a few Things that like Ivanka, Ivanka was really trying to get her sort of jewelry and other whatever else she made company going. So she would have sort of events once in a while, um, and I went to a few of those. But I mean, I what never. What was like, um, our, what was dinner our like at their house? Um, it Catered was takeout. It was takeout. Got it. Got it. Takeout and and the, I mean, this was the they actually this place was near um, Astor Place. It was a apartment, a multi-level mm-hmm. apartment near Astor Place. Um, but it had the feel of like, um, like a corporate apartment. I mean, there was, I couldn't, I don't remember seeing a single picture of a person um, or like there was no like personal effects anywhere. I remember opening the fridge or maybe going to the fridge or something and looking in there and it was like, it was like some, you know, soy sauce and some ketchup and a few bottles of water and some takeout. Like it was, it was a very sort of, as if nobody lived there. I don't. I think they both just worked all the time. This is before they had kids too. So, um, last couple of questions, uh, and and then we'll we'll let you go. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me in your piece was that you mentioned that Jared called his father daddy. Um, uh-huh. Was this just like a one-time thing, or was this like a consistent thing that he referred to him as daddy? And it it's seems so, to me it's so interesting that people little, are. I mean. I guess I was fascinated by it, but I've, I mean, there was a, some Newsweek, I think, did a whole story about this after my piece ran about like the psychology of calling your father daddy. Um, I mean, well, maybe it, does, it is it's, super it's, interesting. It's very, it, it, look, maybe in the 1920s, it would have made sense. Um, uh, maybe if you were 12, it would make, or seven or whatever, it would have made sense. But, <laughs> but again, it's like, you know, his mother telling people which carpets they can have in, in, in his, in her son's office and, 
and him calling his dad daddy just kind of I don't know it just feels it just well, it was it stood I, out I, to me clearly well it's clearly stood out to me too because I remembered it over the years and um, I put it in the piece uh, I, I thought it was strange um, on the one hand on the other hand I mean one of the endearing qualities of this family and and you know I've, I've now I now think they're not a lot but they're extremely loyal people. <laughs> Um, to, wait, loyal really to each other or loyal to loyal each other? I mean, they are it. a really yeah. tight knit group. I mean, when his father was in prison, I mean, he called him. I don't know if it was every day, but he called him a lot and visited him. And the family um, just remained really tight. And and then when he married into the Trumps, that whole the, the sort of Kushner slash Trump families became very tight. And uh, I mean, I I actually think. You know, that's one of the main reasons why Jared has sort of stayed on throughout all this is just pure loyalty to his wife and to his father-in-law. What's that? What do you think um, at the end of this, uh, you know, providing they don't go to jail, uh, um, what do you think Jared does when he comes back to New York? Yeah, I'm I'm totally interested in how whether... um, yeah, the New York world that he was trying to be, trying so hard to become part of, whether whether it wants anything to do with him. Um, I, I mean, I think it's I think it's very much an open question. Um, although, never underestimate um, New Yorkers' willingness to sort of look the other way, especially if somebody you know somebody wants to give you money for a new concert hall, you'll let them in, even if you're like the Koch brothers, who most New Yorkers don't really like, but um, mm-hmm. it happens. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the other interesting question is whether they would want to be part of this anymore. I mean, I think there's been a fairly blanket repudiation of them among in the circles that they once ran in. Um, so I, I don't know sort of where they're going to slot themselves in. I mean, Trump is the same way. I mean, you know, for those of us who have lived in New York a while, Trump was always, I mean, he was always, uh, uh, you know, a sort of ridiculous, um, hard to stomach figure, but he was sort of our ridiculous, hard to stomach figure, right? If you were a <laughs> New Yorker, he was yeah. a New Yorker. And I mean, he was yeah. as crazy as any other New Yorkers. Um, and there was a certain willingness to sort of let him be Donald Trump. Now that I think is the, that's clearly done, right? So mm. I mean, I think, and I think, so I think Jared is going to have a similar problem. I don't really see him. I mean, I you know, because because people know I worked with him. I mean, I often talk to people about him, and um, and it's it's very hard to find somebody who indicate that they're willing that they would be willing to sort of re-embrace them but you never know you never know what do you think oh uh, i think that um i think it's a it's a difficult question which is why i asked you <laughs> um i don't i don't think that they i i mean i think that you have enough people in in the new york especially in the media world who um uh who would speak their mind to 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 Jared and Ivanka given the opportunity to do so and i think that uh um uh i think that unless they you know if they really do come back they, i think in in washington they'd be fine because you get to pick the party you go to and um yeah uh and and the party is also the party um uh, pun intended um uh, I think in in New York it's not so much the case, and um, uh, and I think that you could imagine 
uh, them coming back and thinking we're amazing and famous and wonderful and um, uh, and then um, uh, discovering that um, that that's not what people think um, and you know going to a party and, and having a glass of wine and talking about this sort of that story and and someone quite frankly telling them to go fuck themselves and I think that you know I don't see I don't see Ivanka and Jared as um, uh, very confident people. Um, uh, um, I think that they know what they want, but they don't necessarily know how to deal with um, negative negative feedback um, and usually not uh, presented with any. And I think that, that 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 would probably drive them away a little bit more. So I don't know. But there, there's also the chance that, you know, there's a lot of rumors out there that Jared gets pulled into this Mueller thing and uh, and something happens. Right. I mean, I was going to say, I, th- I think a lot of it depends on how this ends. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, if he if he has to resign at you know at the barrel of a um, uh, you know of a sort of a legal action and sort of has to slink away, that's one thing. If he can sort of see this out and find his own exit, where he's like declaring victory and moving on, then I think that's a different scenario. Yeah, totally I think that's agree. unlikely, but I think you know that that'll that'll determine how he's received here when he comes back. If he comes back, I mean, maybe there's another plan. And maybe I mean, I can actually see him. Um, you know, going back to Jersey. Oh, that would be nice. Family is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kyle. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. This has been really fascinating and people can read your article um, at cjr.org. Um, and, uh, and uh, what's your Twitter handle again? Simple? At Kyle Pope. At Kyle Pope. You can't get that wrong, that one wrong. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Okay. Take care. Thanks to my guest today, Kyle Pope. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsor, ProFlowers. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you next week. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.